Listener Production. In today's briefing, the closely watched trial of Constable Zachary Rolfe over the death of Kumanjai Walker in the remote Indigenous community of Yundamu. On Friday, after a five-week trial and seven hours of deliberation, a jury found Rolfe, a white police officer, not guilty. And this trial has become so much bigger than just this one case. It sparked protests around the country about the reality that Indigenous Australians are 12 times more likely to be incarcerated It also raised questions around police treatment of Indigenous Australians and whether officers should be carrying guns in remote communities. Now that it's over and we have a verdict, we explain what happened in and around the courtroom and why this story hasn't ended. What this inquest will be able to do is look at all of the systemic issues that might have led to his death. And that is, you know, what is police training and who is a police officer and what is their background? First, here are today's headlines. It is Tuesday the 15th of March. Australia and the Netherlands have begun legal proceedings against Russia for the downing of flight MH17. This is an important step in the fight for truth justice and accountability for all of the victims of MH17, including the 38 who called Australia home. So that was the Foreign Minister, Maurice Payne, there. So this is the 2014 incident where the plane was flying over eastern Ukraine. It was hit by a Russian-made missile, killing all 298 people on board, including 38 Australians. Now, Australia and the Netherlands, who also lost a lot of people, maintain that Russia is responsible, so they've now begun proceedings in the International Civil Aviation Organisation. That organisation is a UN agency and it oversees planning and development of safe international air transport. It can introduce sanctions against a member country found to have broken international laws. It can demand Russia pay compensation to victims' families. But for that to happen, Russia would have to cooperate. And so far, they've denied any culpability. So, Tom, I'm not sure what the timing of this particular Mm. action is, whether it's got anything to do with current events, but it just seems like it's a bit of a paper tiger to me unless Russia comes to the table too. Yeah, it's hard to see what it's going to achieve, particularly in the current climate where cooperating with Russia seems quite difficult. And I wonder if this raises false hope for the family about Mm. compensation or a greater sense of justice um, when really it might be just pushback against what Russia's doing at the moment rather than the actual arguments or merits of what happened in 2014. Russia is stepping up their bombardment of Ukraine's capital. Shelling on a residential building in northwest Kyiv has left one person dead and injured three others. While there are fears of a second Chernobyl disaster with reports of Russian explosives going off next to Europe's biggest nuclear power plant, which is in southeast Ukraine. In a tiny bit of good news, and this is good news, after several failed attempts to open humanitarian corridors now, about 160 vehicles have managed to evacuate people from the besieged southern city of Mariupol. Uh, that's according to Ukrainian officials. Meanwhile, the US and China have been in high-level talks in Rome, and the US is trying to persuade China not to supply Russia with arms. That's after a US intelligence report showed Moscow had asked Beijing for military assistance. Russia and China both deny this. Tax cut anyone? The Prime Minister has flagged tax relief to deal with the rising cost of living. So Australia's cost of living is outstripping wage increases. 
leaving the average worker more than $800 worse off last year. That's according to the Australian Council of Trade Unions. So in real terms, that's the steepest cut in more than 20 years. This means the low and middle tax offset could be extended for another year, which would deliver up to $1,080 to 10 million people. You've got to earn less than $126,000 a year to be eligible, though. There's also pressure on Scott Morrison to slash the fuel excise to also relieve pressure amid rising fuel prices. We are very aware of what is occurring with petrol prices. That fuel excise is a flat tax of 44 cents a litre. Uh, it's meant to account for about a fifth of the total price of petrol, though, so there are other factors at play. In New Zealand, Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern has cut her country's fuel excise, though. Cabinet has decided today to do what we can to alleviate the increases at the pump by reducing the fuel excise duty by 25 cents a litre for a period of three months. Yeah, so that's what people are calling for here, a temporary pause or reduction of the fuel excise during this period of high oil prices. I will say, though, in New Zealand, their excise was 75 cents a litre, so cutting it by 25 brings it back to where ours is already. A lot of um, people are saying in government that if we respond with a huge cut like this, which would cost, you know, potentially hundreds of millions of dollars out of the budget, which is spent on things like maintaining roads, in reaction to what could be a temporary spike, it could be really hard to wind that back. Uh, Just a one cent a litre cut to Australia's fuel excise would cost the budget $500 million a year. And that's, that's a lot of money. Australia's first paid sick leave scheme for casual workers will be trialled in Victoria as part of a two-year pilot program. Too many people have too little to fall back on. Uh, This is about correcting that. That's Premier Dan Andrews there with a bit of a bold plan. So this $250 million Victorian sick pay guarantee will provide vulnerable, casual or insecure job workers with up to five-day sick leave at the national minimum wage. Yeah, sounds like a good idea in my opinion. Here's how it works. You'll need a medical certificate and the leave is for more than 15 hours in a row and the five days won't roll over each year. Now, to begin with, the scheme will be funded by taxpayers and after that, it could be funded through a levy applied to business. So there are already 150,000 hospitality, food, trade, retail and aged care workers in Victoria who can go and register for this scheme online. Unsurprisingly, the state opposition, federal government, industry groups have vowed to fight it. Federal Industrial Relations Minister Michaelia Cash has described it as a tax on jobs and a handbrake on our economy. And look, they're saying things like, should casual workers still get that 25% loading if they are are entitled to sick leave because in the past, you know, that's been seen as the the payoff for not having entitlements like that. Yeah, but what about the other entitlements like annual leave, you know, which should be four weeks a year? That's what the loading's for. I mean, Mm. this is just protecting the most vulnerable workers when they actually get sick. I think this makes a lot of sense. And I, I don't know if the federal government will get a lot of political capital fighting this one. All right, in just a moment, the full story on the Zachary Rolfe verdict. All right, now to our briefing on the Zachary Rolfe trial over the death of Kumunjai Walker in Yundamu. The big news is the not guilty verdict on Friday. And as you'll hear, 
the upcoming coronial inquest, which is why this story is far from over. Yeah, that's right. So what actually happened on that tragic night in the desert and what are the unanswered questions this inquest will attempt to answer? Samantha Joncha has been following this trial very closely. She's an ABC News journo in Darwin. Samantha, thanks so much for joining us on The Briefing. Who was Jai Walker and how had he gotten to the attention of police? Kumanjai Walker was a 19-year-old Walpuri man from the remote community of Yindamu, which is about 250, 300 kilometres from us here in Alice Springs. It's one of the largest remote communities in the Northern Territory, and there's usually about up to 800 people there. Now, Kumanjai Walker, about a week before he died, absconded from a bail facility here in Alice Springs. He took off his electronic monitoring bracelet and travelled to Yindamu to attend a family funeral. Now, that was the family funeral of an older man in the community that he was very close to. That was when he came into the attention of police. He was originally wanted for breaching that bail condition to begin with. There was a so-called axe incident that happened three days before Walker was fatally shot that appeared to set in motion the events that followed. What can you tell us about that? Yeah, so three days before Kumunjai Walker died, some local Yindamu police entered a house in Yindamu trying to arrest Mr. Walker for this breach of bail that he had just done. You might have seen the body-worn video of this incident. You know, when they entered the house, they, you know, ask Mr. Walker to come with them and he pulls out an axe and he brandishes it at police. Now, we've seen this from a couple of angles, but you see Mr. Walker approach the police and a bit of a altercation ensues and he runs away from the house. Okay, so tell us about that night that he was shot. What had happened? How did events unfold? So Constable Zachary Rolfe was part of a special police group based here in Alice Springs. And um, what we know about Yundamu at that time, we've heard from many people in this trial about this. Yundamu was experiencing a spike in break-ins and there was also some unrest in a neighbouring community. And local police in Yundamu requested help from Alice Springs and they wanted some help in the morning arresting Kumanjai Walker because two of the officers who'd been involved in the so-called axe incident, they had a conflict of interest and couldn't help arrest him the next day. That special group includes Constable Zachary Rolfe. He comes out with four other officers, including a dog handler. What we know that night is that Constable Zachary Rolfe and the rest of that special police group arrive in Yindamu and they set out and start looking for Mr. Walker. And when they arrive at that other house, two officers wait outside and then Constable Zachary Rolfe and his police partner, Adam Ebrill, enter and they see a man at the end of a hallway. They ask him who he is. He says that his name is Vernon Dixon. Now, this turns out to be Kumanjai Walker. They call this man closer to him. And it's only when they hold up a photo of Kumanjai Walker that Constable Rolf has on his phone that they identify that this man is the man that they are looking for. Now, what happens from there happens really quickly. If anyone's seen the body-worn video, as they're trying to arrest him, a struggle breaks out. Now, in this time, we understand that Constable Zachary Rolf is stabbed in the shoulder with a pair of 13-centimeter medical scissors. That's when Constable Zachary Wolf fires the first shot. Then uh, the struggle continues and Constable Rolf's police partner, that's Adam Ebril, and Mr. Walker falls to the ground and they fall on a mattress. And the struggle ensues. Now, this happens only two and a half seconds after that first shot is fired. Constable Rolf fires his gun again two more times. It's from here that um, Mr. Walker died an hour later. Rolf wasn't actually charged with that first shot, but the second and the third. So what were the main arguments during the trial by prosecutors? 
Yes, the prosecution, you know, says that that first shot was legally justified, which, you know, means that as a police officer, he was executing his duties and and that was understood to be self-defense. But it's these second and third shots, those two shots that were fired two and a half seconds after that first shot that really formed the base of the prosecution's case. And they said that uh, those shots were not legally justified because Constable Ebrell, that was Mr. Rolfe's police partner had effectively restrained Kumanjai Walker on the mattress. Now that effectively restrained is a term that came up a lot in the trial. And basically what the prosecution was saying was while the pair of them were on the mattress, Kumanjai Walker no longer posed a threat to police. Therefore, the lethal force used by Constable Rolfe was not justified. And that was really the basis of the prosecution's case and what they set out to prove over the course of the trial. On that night, what happened after the shooting? Because there was a, a lot of drama in the community. Constable Rolfe gave evidence that, uh, you know, immediately after that, there was a lot of concern. People came to the house to find out what had happened. We heard from an Aboriginal liaison officer who worked for the police that he was there trying to calm people down. We heard from another officer that he was trying to keep people out of the house. There was certainly a lot of concern from community members about what was happening inside that house. We know that Kumjai Walker was moved by police from the house where he was shot to the police station. And that was where police administered first aid over the next hour or so. There was certainly a lot of concern from community members. And in the end, the police elected not to let anyone in from the community because of what they called security concerns. Was there initial concern that this incident wouldn't even be the subject of charges or a trial? Yeah, definitely. In the in the days following the shooting, there was a huge amount of concern in the community and a number of senior members of the police and the chief minister actually visited Yundamu. And there was a lot of concern from the community that, you know, this would not be treated seriously. And they had a lot of questions and they wanted a lot of answers. And that remains the case now. Samantha, covering that trial, just describe for us what the emotional temperature in the courtroom was like. I understand the jury had to be shown that body-worn camera footage so many times. And there's people there from the community. There's people there from the police. There's Constable Rolf's family. What was it like? It was incredibly tense. You know, five weeks is a really long time as well for, you know, the emotions that were kind of running through this trial to be sustained, you know, frame by frame over and over and over. The jury went through the body worn video. There's a huge outpouring of emotion from both sides, audible frustration from members of uh, the Indemu community and then heavy sighs of relief from those who were supporting Constable Zachary Rolfe as people left the courtroom. And then on the Darwin Supreme Court steps, we saw a huge amount of really charged emotion, a huge amount of grief and an outpouring of emotion really from um, in particular Walpree community members who traveled the 1500 kilometers to Darwin for Mm. the trial. Tell us more about their response. How did they express their sadness? There's a huge amount of concern and sadness expressed on those court steps. You know, over the course of the trial, we heard from, you know, at one point the defense Barrister David Edwardson QC said that uh, Kumanjai Walker was the architect of his own demise. And we heard on the steps that really was pushback 
against by members of his family who wanted Mr. Walker to be remembered as who he was, not as simply a violent criminal. Now, this event was also linked to, you know, the ongoing um, relationship between police and remote communities and the people that they police. There were calls for police to no longer carry guns in community. Mm. This trial system that was unfamiliar to them had not necessarily answered all of the questions that they wanted answers to. They expressed a deeply felt sense of dispossession. So now that this trial is over, a coronial inquest into this matter can proceed. Do you reckon some of those questions around guns in remote communities and and the training and recruitment of Northern Territory Police, are they some of the things that could come up in this inquest? Yeah, I mean, it's it's pretty hard to say exactly what it will look like, but we know that it's going to stretch for three months. Um, we know that it's going to be held here in Alice Springs at a larger venue than the courthouse to accommodate all of the different parties in this case and all of the, the local interest. We can expect it to certainly delve into, you know, exactly what happened in the lead up to the shooting of Kumanjai Walker what we will finally be able to look at, which this trial could not look at, which is what happened when he died and what happened in the days after his death and how was that handled by police. So we can expect to hear a lot more about that. What this inquest will be able to do is look at all of the systemic issues that might have led to his death. And that is, you know, what is police training and who is a police officer and what is their background? The trial effectively came down to what the jury believed was going through Rolf's head during the arrest. That's a hugely tricky question for those jurors. It's the judge's job to outline for the jury exactly what kind of legal questions are at play and how to understand those legal questions, you know, because the jury is just like you and me. They're not versed in the legal system. And the way that the judge outlined this case, he put to them that it was up to them to work out the answer to two key questions. What actually happened that night in Yundamu? And then crucially, what did Constable Zachary Rolf perceive was happening that night in Yundamu? That was Samantha Johnshire from ABC News Darwin. Kumanjai Walker's death and the trial itself has caused so much pain for the community in the Northern Territory. And mm. I guess just might be a bit hopeful or idealistic, but you, you just love to think that something small could be gained from this tragedy. And I guess all hopes mm. now will be pinned on the inquest that it might reveal something that we can change so that this kind of tragic loss is avoided in the future. Tomorrow on The Briefing, we are talking fuel prices. Uh, Is this a spike like no other? How long will it last? And just how much will it impact the rest of the economy and your hip pocket? Listener.